The FT. This week saw the publication of the most comprehensive report on global warming so far. It found reassuringly that the risk of runaway climate change can be prevented without seriously denting global economic growth. But the organisation also warned that without deep cuts to greenhouse gas emissions, we'll face more frequent climate-related disasters, the cost of which is impossible to quantify. I'm Fiona Simon, and with me in the studio to discuss the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report is Polita Clark, our environment correspondent. Hi, Polita. First of all, what was new in this latest report by the IPCC? Well. In many ways, there shouldn't have been anything very much new in this report because what it was, in fact, was a synthesis report. In other words, it was drawing together all the findings of three enormous reports that the IPCC has put out over the last 13 months. And what this report was designed to do was to pull all of the findings on the physical basis of the science, ways in which climate warming can be addressed and adapted to, and put them into one single report. It was always going to be the most important one in some senses because it was the one that policymakers and governments were most likely to read. But the very interesting thing about it was that the language in it was uh, much more urgent in tone, really, than the previous three reports, and much simpler. And um, what it said very starkly, really, was in fact just the implications of the previous reports, namely, and most importantly, that somehow the world needs to get to a state where we are no longer really emitting greenhouse gases in a net sense. By the end of the century, they're saying we need to get down to near zero or net zero. In other words, any emissions that are produced by burning fossil fuels on which all uh, global economies rely need to be countered with uh, technologies that can either remove CO2 from the atmosphere or uh, somehow capture and store it under the ground. So what did the IPCC recommend as the best way emissions can be lowered without damaging growth? They don't actually have any very strong prescriptive priorities when it comes to their policies. They set out a range of measures that could be used and they talk about anything from a higher price on carbon, which would then in turn drive more renewable energy investment. Um, They talk about carbon capture and storage, which is a technology that can be put on, for example, a coal-fired power plant, capture the CO2 emissions and then store them under the ground or under the sea. And so they go through a range of those sorts of measures, but they don't actually come out and say, this is what the world should do. World leaders are meeting in Paris in a year's time to try and reach a comprehensive agreement on combating climate change. How are the preparations going and will this report help to concentrate minds, do you think? Well, that's the aim of it. And it certainly is timely in terms of these UN global climate negotiations. It is going to be used and pointed to in some ways, but in other ways, really, the UN negotiations are an intensely political process. And it's fair to say that even though they initially agreed in Durban in 2011 that they were going to be in Paris at the end of next year, coming up with a deal that would um, enter force by 2020, they never really rush these things and it's fair to say that the progress at the moment is uh, not exactly rapid. They are still debating a number of things. They don't have a draft text yet. They think they may have one by the next meeting uh, which is in a few weeks time in Lima in Peru. 
where again there will be a big round of climate negotiations all designed to speed up this process to creating um, this uh, comprehensive agreement on combating climate change. But the agreement is supposed to be, for example, legally binding. It's supposed to have legal force. There are a lot of problems with that. The reason these negotiations have taken as long as they have is because um, countries such as the US, notoriously, but not only the US, basically are not good at signing international treaties. And so one of the things they're grappling with is how they can have a legally binding agreement or treaty uh, that isn't actually legally binding <laughs> when it comes down to the US Senate. So that's just one of the problems they're fighting about. There's a huge amount of disagreement, as ever, um, in terms of who's going to pay for what sort of uh, climate action. And, of course, how much should each country be required to um, cut its greenhouse gas emissions? This time around, we're not going to see the same sort of process we had before the 1997 Kyoto Protocol. Um, that treaty was a sort of a, a top-down treaty where developed countries were required to lower their emissions by a certain amount. This time, in the jargon of these things, it's being called a balance between top-down and bottom-up, and it's basically going to mean that countries volunteer or tell the world what they plan to do domestically to lower their emissions, then everybody gets a chance to look at whether that adds up to a meaningful action to lower emissions as much as the IPCC says they need to come down by. And uh, then they're supposed to go back and uh, if it doesn't add up, which it almost certainly won't, there's supposed to be some sort of process that's created so that ambition can be ratcheted up, as they like to say in these things. So, you know, we're a long way away from seeing what uh, is eventually going to be produced in Paris. But we can certainly say that it's not going to be anything like the Kyoto Protocol. Are most countries now pretty convinced of the need for urgent action? Or are there still some countries who are not convinced? Well, it's, it's an interesting question. You know, last few weeks ago in New York, hundreds of thousands of people marched in the streets. You know, we had the same sorts of um, parades and marches in many cities around the world. So in many countries, it's clear that uh, the public is convinced of the need for urgent action. And I would say that in, in most governments, it's very rare to find a government these days that will not say that there's a need. And in fact, in uh, around the time of that march in New York, the UN held a climate summit where more than 100 leaders came and told everybody what they were doing about climate change and how important Paris was and what they hoped would come out of it. So I think that it's reasonable to say that uh, most countries do not need to be convinced. However, that's uh, that's very different from saying that governments are prepared to take the sort of action that's going to be required if the IPCC's findings about action are going to be met because, you know, really it requires an enormous shift in energy systems alone and... And that's proved to be very difficult to achieve in the past. There was another worrying finding about the future of the planet this week, this time about water shortages. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, this is uh, some interesting research from California from quite a prominent hydrologist, Professor Jay Famiglietti, who has uh, been writing about the problem with groundwater. That's the stores of water that lie below the Earth's surface in aquifers and uh, drip down through the soil. It's incredibly important. In fact, it uh, it accounts for around a third of the water that's used globally, and uh, it's the main source of water for around 2 billion people. It's also incredibly important for irrigation. 
But he has found that it's dwindling very rapidly in a lot of countries, particularly the US, China, Australia, India, the Middle East, and it's basically being pumped out faster than it can be easily replenished naturally by rainfall. So it's been a problem that's been largely under-recognised, under-managed, not properly monitored. It's below the ground. It doesn't get as much attention as a river or a reservoir or something that we can easily see. But nonetheless, he makes the point that a lot of these aquifers are actually underneath incredibly valuable and productive farmland. And um, the economic implications of this very crucial water resource basically running out are fairly profound. Is this something that world leaders are going to discuss at their meeting in Paris next year? Well, on the edges, possibly, but not really. It's not really at the centre of the negotiations. There will be a lot of groups, a lot of NGOs and uh, other environmental and conservation groups present, and they'll be trying to train attention on these sorts of problems. But no, it's not something that's likely to be discussed, even though Professor Famiglietti makes the point that climate change is likely to complicate the groundwater problem because one of the reasons that groundwater gets used very quickly occurs when there's a a very extended or long-term drought like the one that we've seen in California and parts of Brazil. And during times of drought, farmers in particular basically rely on groundwater because surface water is much more difficult to come So if the IPC's predictions about the possible increase in the frequency and intensity of heat waves and and maybe drought, they're a little more vague on uh, the frequency of drought. But anyway, I mean, it's entirely likely that precipitation and heat waves in particular are likely to change as a result of the changing climate. So this is likely to be a problem that's only going to intensify. This uh, water shortage, presumably in the long term, presents a problem for global food shortages. Well, in the longer term, if it's not addressed, that is entirely possible. In fact, I was out in California doing a story for the paper a few weeks ago, and uh, the groundwater problem there is pretty intense. And uh, it's meant that farmers in the Central Valley, which is one of the most productive uh, agricultural regions in the United States, they've had to really rely on groundwater significantly during the drought. And uh, some hydrologists out there are saying that uh, they've seen some extraordinary rates of depletion in groundwater levels. So yes, I mean, if the if the drought were to last another year and people were unable to use that groundwater, then it does start to present some worrying sorts of um, scenarios for food production in that region. Finally, many people put their faith in technology as the best hope of addressing some of these problems, problems created by population growth and industrialisation. Have there been any hopeful technological developments recently that have caught your eye? Well, actually, there has. It's a battery. It's a lithium battery, like the one, well, not not a million miles removed from the one that we all use in our laptops and smartphones and uh, even electric cars. There are some scientists in uh, Massachusetts who've been working on reinventing the battery. And they have come up with a device that some analysts think could be quite a game-changing sort of advance in the technology. It's a new type of lithium battery that can be used in consumer electronic devices or electric cars. But the scientists think that in an electric car, it has the potential to triple the driving range and also significantly lower its cost. That's because the battery itself is cheaper to produce. And in addition, it can store quite a lot more energy than 
the existing generation of lithium batteries. And it is really interesting because although so-called range anxiety and cost are not the only reasons that people have been a little slow on the uptake with electric cars, uh, there's also problems with uh, lack of access to charging facilities and, in fact, the amount of time that it takes to recharge an electric car. But nonetheless, if it's possible to come up with a battery system that can um, lower the cost significantly of a car and mean that you can drive it all day in the way that you can with a, a conventional car, it could be quite transformational. Thank you very much, Peter. Thanks, Fiona. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.